welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Should we have black coffee or tea? Very important question. Just realized one of the hosts giving me the timeout sign was not the timeout sign, but in fact, the T sign. It took me a while to get it. I got it now. For those of you who aren't looking at the screen, you may not have noticed already. Errol Fox is joining us today as one of the panelists. Errol is a longtime Sustain member. They have been on many of the Sustain events, including the one in Africa, which is awesome because they're calling today from Britain, mostly in the design area. Errol, does that sound right to you? Is there anything else I'm missing in your excellent introduction? I am particularly interested to have this conversation today because of the background that I have in humanitarian open source software. So I am really interested, really excited to have this conversation with Kavita. Excellent. Errol just snuck in the name of our guest, which I was going to get to last. But now you know that there's someone named Kavita and we will get to her in a second. Because we almost never introduced the panelists, we figured that today would also be a good day to do so. So that was Errol Fox, currently doing a PhD, lives in Bristol, currently has blonde hair, but that's, sometimes that changes. And then we have Eric Berry. Eric Berry is a longtime Rubyist and Utahan who really likes to hang out with a dog literally between two halves of his keyboard. Eric, how are you doing today? Doing great. I mean, you wake up in the morning, you hold a puppy, and how bad can your life be, right? That's the best argument for dog ownership I've ever heard. Thank you so much. Eric, also on this podcast, we have our sometime panelist. Very excited to have her back today. Alyssa Wright. Alyssa is another longtime sustainer, formerly at Open Source Collective, but now at Bloomberg. We're very excited to see her move on to new things and most excitedly to watch and hear as she cycles back from L.A. to New York. Can't wait to see how that goes. 3,000 miles of cycling. She is so on fire. Alyssa, how are you? I am good. Thank you for that intro, Richard. And happy to be here. For those of you who don't know, she's probably not actually cycling, but she does cycle all the time. For I would like to. So I'm not. Totally should. Yes. Totally should. All right. So those are our panelists. And then there's me. I'm Richard Littauer. I run Sustain. I wrote the dictionary for the language from the movie Avatar called Not V. And I used to have a company where people would pay me to get drunk and review UX for websites. So that's probably all you need to know about me. Nothing else. Kavita Kapoor is our guest today. Kavita is joining us from London. She is the co-founder of Federation of Humanitarian Technologists. Kavita, I don't know you well enough to give you a weird and possibly false intro like I've given everyone else. Could you? Um, does it just need to be weird? Like I could tell you I'm a third Dan in a martial arts and I run an LGBTQ plus club on my doorstep. I can tell you I've been coding since I was very small, about eight years old. I grew up in the Middle East and moved to the UK and continued to code. I don't know what else to tell you, really. I've done all the things that you would do when you're coding. And then I started making open source tech and building companies. And that was kind of my journey. That's amazing. That's a great self-introduction. Which martial art? Oh, it's one no one's ever heard of. It's called Shirinji Kempo, And it has about a million practitioners out in Japan, a million worldwide. It's kind of a mix of hard and soft techniques. So Aikido and Karate. Probably is the closest. So if I dive straight in, you've had Mike on the podcast previously, and Mike's the co-founder of the Federation of Humanitarian Technologists. 
he and I actually bonded over the fact that he does judo. So one of the first things we started talking about was martial arts and not tech and not saving the wood planet, which uh, he's pretty good at. That's super exciting. I'm a first on karate. I did karate for 10 years. I never get to bring that up because it just never seems relevant to open source. And also it feels weird to bring it up. But third Don is awesome. That's so cool. I don't, I don't know. That's really cool. Yeah, we have had Mike on the podcast and Mike is super awesome. How did you two meet? I'm one of these people who has to do all the things. As I came into my 40s, I realized that I didn't have any role models. So I looked sort of slightly older and there's these bunch of amazing women in the UK who do all the things. They sit in the House of Commons. They have a charity. They run big business. Amazing. I want to be one of those people when I grow up. So doing all the things, I am part of Open UK and I'm their chief of learning. We went out to FOSDEM and I was kind of wandering around talking to loads of people who said, I've got this idea. I want to like think about how open source needs to be more collected and we need to be helping people more with the work that we do. There's not really any platforms to do that with. And someone directed me to Mike. So we're talking about Brexit Day for the UK. And we're in Brussels. And I have this, uh, you know, life-changing moment where I meet Mike. And, and he just starts talking sense at me and going, yeah, this we should do this thing. It's great. Can you describe what the, this thing is? Although uh, we've had Mike Nolan on the podcast, it was a while ago. So what is the Federation of Humanitarian Technologists? So Mike's journey is pretty unique. He was in the for-profit world. He decided to join the International Rescue Committee. If you're British, you know who that organization quite well because it's run by an ex-UK politician who's very well known. And it's a huge organization and it, it works in multiple of locations. But the work that Mike was doing was helping refugees connect with work and giving them a stipend all through a, a mobile app that he was developing. That's all cool. But the problem that he had was when he got there, he didn't have a desk <laughs> and he didn't have like the infrastructure to make this happen. And he had to sort of sit with his computer on his lap for about a month trying to make all of this uh, work. And what he realized, and I think it's what we all realize when we work for organizations of different scales, is that it's really difficult sometimes to scale up and have the infrastructure especially when you're working on projects that are all funded for the end goal, for the end impact. And you don't really want to sort of go, actually, we'll pull together all this money and get an all singing, all dancing tech infrastructure in place to do invoicing, to order those tables, to get wireless set up, all those sort of basic things. So his pitch to me was, what if we can bring together the best open source tech companies doing that? as a collective and produce a solution for back to the humanitarian aid sector. And that was our starting point. So that's a super awesome goal. And it makes a ton of sense. I mean, IFC's website is rescue.org. So like, yes, it's really great to see more work from tech go towards helping people directly, especially people from the third world, especially people from places where there's conflict. How's it going? It's going really well, actually. We've just hired our first humanitarian aid director. So until now, we've been staffed by technologists and it was time to get someone from the aid sector to join us because the aid sector is not my background at all. Uh, it's certainly Mike's, but it's not mine. So I feel really like I'm learning. And so if you're not from that background, 
I'm really confused by what's the difference between aid work and development work. I'm really confused by all the sort of big agencies that are involved in there. And I'm also, because my heritage is Indian, I've done a lot of work on the ground in India. And it's so different to sort of working with the big organizations like Save the Children, for example, which I've also done in my career. So is this a sort of full gamut of like, what is this world? And so getting in a um, humanitarian aid specialist, she's based in Jordan and she's just finished up with John Hopkins University. And she seems to be a megastar in her own right. She's got a really um, solid following. So I'm super excited about getting her on board. That's been great. We're actually funded by a Just Eat Takeaway. And they've been incredible in terms of giving us technologists and giving us funding to be able to run the organization. But they too understand the importance of open source and giving back during a pandemic. They have been phenomenal at providing the resources to do this and create a volunteering platform that charities in the UK have identified that they really need. That's sort of the missing gap that they seem to have in terms of tech. But not just in the UK, just yesterday I spoke to an organization in Canada who also has that gap, which is, you know, especially in the pandemic, everyone wants to volunteer, everyone wants to do this at grassroots level. And we're basically killing the infrastructure to make that, you know, with people getting so many requests in their inbox of how do we like match that up to somebody else and actually get people helping people quickly. I'm really fascinated by this. I love the humanitarian efforts, but I'm curious as a developer and an open source developer, I'd love to hear more of where those lines cross in open source versus what you're working with humanitarian efforts. Can you elaborate on that? It's a really good question because we're still at that sort of fledgling stage of kind of galvanizing the open source community and trying to figure out what works happening. So What we've done this year is Mike's leading on a piece of research that he's looking at and actually figuring out across the humanitarian sector what the gaps are. The sort of basic research that we did last year was that if you wanted to get a volunteer to sign up to your organization, you tend to put a Google Docs form up or you put Eventbrite together or something like that. And then you sort of put that all into a spreadsheet and then you start manually working your way through trying to match people up. So that's just one gap that we've identified. So we've kind of gone through and looked at what kind of open source organizations are out there. And if there's someone listening to this podcast and they goes, you know what, I have a solution for this sector, but I can't get traction, then we have actually a steering committee that we're pulling together to bring those organizations to talk to each other. Because what we're all finding is that we're all solving slightly different problems and at slightly different angles for a specific charitable organization or not-for-profit. And actually, we'd be better off thinking about how we pull together our resources, make a bigger community to solve more problems more generically. So that's sort of the first place that we're looking at the open source community. The other is about getting our sponsors and technologists to come back and contribute. I know from my journey, I went into Silicon Valley to start with. I worked for a company called Documentum, not very open source, and then came back to the UK and worked in the sort of media industry, so BBC and Channel 4 and these types of folks. And you start touching on the tech, but you sort of flip back and forth between the technology. So it's sort of, you don't know at that grassroots that you're 
hitting the open source community. And so we are working with our sponsors to sort of get them galvanized to come in and join the um, projects that we've got. So at the Federation, we've got a couple of projects that you'll find on our GitHub pages, including Coalesce, which is the volunteer project that I keep talking about. So I am also a person that is fascinated and amazed when work happens in the intersection between open source software and humanitarian efforts. But here's an idea that I've really struggled with in this space. So I'd love to hear what yourself and your colleagues think about this. But NGOs and charities tend to have a lot of needs, right? You've said this, they have a lot of needs around software. They have a lot of needs around the aid that they give, the support work that they do. But they lack capacity to sustain and grow these technological solutions in a lot of cases. So I am wondering and would love to hear you talk about does open source software and the open source community offer more opportunities for these NGOs and charities to build capacity around their technology? The answer to that is, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be really honest, you know, as a group of people, but we need to find out because I think we understand that is the problem. So I've seen this a million times in outside of the humanitarian aid sector, right? You build something and then you throw it away and then you build it and you throw it away and it, it sort of never gets used. It gets worse when you're basically incentivized based on impact project by project. So you get each project is funded and sometimes the same funding organization is funding two or three projects that are doing exactly the same tech and everyone's into like the most cool thing. So it's always about drones and blockchain at the moment and not about the infrastructure. And so the proposal that I took, the business plan that Mike pitched me was, this is how we solve it. We pull together the infrastructure. We have a one-stop shop of having all of the organizations and all of the infrastructure and all of the tech that could be delivered. And maybe even in my head, I think that means the hosting organizations, the speed to market. You know, if you're in crisis and you, you need to rustle up something in two days or two hours. It's a very different proposition if you have two years to do a development piece. And so having those options to be able to deliver is where we're going. And so that's a long-winded way of saying, I don't know, but we might get there. And the way we plan to get there is, as I was saying before, we've got this research piece of project that we're doing that will start figuring out where those gaps are. And then we will test through. But maybe something I should have said is that we are just over a year old and we obviously started in the middle of lockdown. I've only met Mike three times in person. So you mentioned earlier that you've worked with humanitarian companies that work with children and you also have worked with Open UK, their director of learning. And Open UK also focuses on making tech easily accessible mm -hmm. by children in the UK. So I'm curious why you think it's important that children learn about technology, but also whether open source can be part of that education and how early it should be, et cetera. I will rustle all the way back and tell you a story, if that's okay with you. So I had become a director of an organization where we did advertising solutions, and I found myself trying to convince people to buy Kiwis while in Dubai. A client was shipping fruits across the world and from New Zealand, and we created a Facebook app and you had to take your picture and put it up. And I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I That's doing great. this? 
<laughs> this, this is not the way I want to be, you know, helping. But what I had was actually a team of people. My team were based in India and in Singapore. And what really caught my attention was that being in the tech sector had changed their lives. Some of them hadn't touched a computer until they got to university. Most of them were also learning English at the same time in order to, and they were creating, you know, tech for Dubai, New York, Silicon Valley, the whole thing. A global tech company. And it was life-changing because they were being paid three times the amount that you'd get paid locally. And I was looking at this and thinking, you know, for me, the diversity issue within tech, especially in the UK, I was one of... Three women who graduated in my class of um, 80 people who started, I think it was. And the same was true on my master's degree. And the same was true in my first and second job continues to be the case. That lack of diversity just kind of caught my attention and then the opportunity. So when I came back to the UK, the BBC Microbit, I don't know if anyone knows what that is. Lots of nods on this in this call, but the BBC Microbit. Let me also trundle back. When I was a kid, I learned how to code on a BBC Micro, which was this thing that the BBC had created and was in every classroom. So when they created the latest version of that and I saw it presented, it was like, I want to be part of this. So I went off and I became CEO of the Microbit Educational Foundation. And we went around the world. We went into 60 countries during my tenure. We went from a million devices in the UK that was given away for free, four million devices around the world. And some of the kids that we worked with were incredible. We had a campaign where we got them to do sustainability solutions using the microbit. One young woman in Manhouse in Brazil did a cleanup so she could figure out if someone was throwing rubbish into the water. And she had come up with a wrapping solution for this device so that she could check that. So it was an incredible piece of work. At Open UK, we're doing the same thing, but locally rather than globally. And that's also really important to me because it's most of the resources in the UK, most people will know this is, is sort of centered. It's London centric. And I'm, you know, very conscious that we are in the last five years of doing work with kids. We don't see enough children in Northern Ireland, enough girls specifically taking A-level computer science. And same with sort of bits of the UK, the extremities of the UK, if you're sat in London, they're not the extremities, they're the best bits. Someone who lived in Scotland for five years, I couldn't agree with you more. I really want to point out the understatement of what you're saying and the way you're saying it is really fascinating to me. And then I went off and became COO. You've done an amazing job getting to those positions. And also, it sounds like Microbit has done awesome work around the world, which is super, super cool. And Open UK is also doing awesome work. We've had Amanda Brock on the podcast as well, which was really great. Open UK is a membership organization. And I believe that Federation of Humanitarian Technologies also is. Why are you interested in that sort of model? As is the martial arts club that I run. So <laughs> I'm really intrigued by different forms of corporate governance at the moment. I'm also trustee of a ecology charity that cleans up rivers as well. So it's sort of a very different model. Like, I'll be honest, I like making money. You know, I have pure play Asian parents who are, you know, properly, what's that word where they, they hover above you? I've forgotten what that is. You know, it's helicopter parents. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be in tech if they hadn't been those types of people. They were like, you have to go into tech. That's where the money is. You've got to, you know, you've got to get a degree, that kind of thing. But actually, 
when I've been working for profit organizations, I've never felt that I could have the impact that I wanted to have or have the access to the power structures that I wanted to have so that we could actually do more good. You know, we did good by default. If you're making a TV program and changing the way people think, that's amazing. If you're, what else have I done in my world? Sold underwear, I think, helped to organizations sell underwear or apparel. You can do good with that. But the bottom line is always about where the money is. Now, when you have a members organization, you have to talk to them about impact. You have to tell them that what changes you are making in the world, how you're making that change. You have to live your mission and visions. You can't get away with, hey, we, we made 10% profit. This is good enough. Here's your money back. So I think from that point of view, it really excites me in terms of monitoring change in the world. And the other is how involved people feel with the organization. So at Open UK, Amanda's done an incredible job. She has gone from absolutely a standstill in the last two years to having, I think it's about two to 300 vote volunteers who are all passionate about the organization and open source and contribute in very different ways, everything from legal and policy through to my committee that's around education. And they all give back because they feel like they own that organization. I mean, I certainly do. You are a powerhouse. How do you have time outside of all of these things you're doing? I just imagine that you were just constantly going and going and going. <laughs> what's your passion outside of what we've talked about? Oh, what's my passion? You mean outside of martial arts and tech and, and tea? I love tea and growing. I grow my own vegetables. I'm obsessed with growing vegetables and learning languages. Those are probably my main hobbies. I don't know. I'm one of these horrible like MBA types. You know, those people that like go through Pinterest with all those productivity things. I'm one of those people who consumes all of that. Like I'm like, this is, I'm a, yeah, I'm a Pomodoro person and I could talk to you about that at length, but I'm sure you don't want to hear about it. I love Pomodoro. I'm like next guy. <laughs> a lot of our listeners are technologists and I think many of them are interested in doing impactful work in the world. And so I'm wondering from the technologist side, like how does one get involved with humanitarian efforts such as yours and do that in a sustainable way for them, perhaps like emotionally as well as financially? So that's a great question because I think that I've definitely had burnout like the next person. You can't do, you know, Pomodoro is not going to cut it itself, right? <laughs> so it depends on your starting point. So if your starting point is that you're in a finance company and you're doing a ton of tech work and you don't have the bandwidth, then, you know, taking on a open source project that you also maintain on the side is going to be a kind of a crazy ask, I think. But that doesn't mean that you can't mentor somebody once a month for an hour who is in that position. I'm loving GitHub's current sponsorship facility. So you can actually seek, if you don't know anyone to mentor and support, you can just go out there and seek them. So that's really exciting. I do a lot of mentoring of people who are at different points in their careers. I find it crazy at the moment that we've got so many people out of work who have tech skills and so many open tech positions. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that gap is. I can't see it upset. Maybe it's the proper social skills to get there. 
So I'm working with people who have just graduated, trying to get them or coming back after a maternity break to get them the sort of interviewing skills. And that's something I can do in my spare time because, frankly, I don't know, getting a Docker instance set down and then getting the code up and, you know, spending half a day getting to grips with a couple of bugs and fixing them. You know, I just don't have the bandwidth for that, but I do have the bandwidth for a 30 minute conversation. There's lots of people who we work with, as I said, the amazing team at Just Eat Takeaway, who actually do have the time to help us with our projects. They do have the time because their organization gives them one day a month to volunteer. So they get to come and work with us and they take that time and they choose open source and they can get away with it. It is really where your starting point is, but you can always do something and you can always negotiate with your teams at work to get some bandwidth. I'd make one other point, which is always do something that will enhance your CV. It's very easy to get bored if you're doing exactly what you're doing in your day job continually. Do something that stretches you when you're picking what you're going to volunteer on. So it's that next thing. So it shows to your organization that you're picking up additional skills. It sounds very Machiavellian, but it's also, it stops me getting bored when I keep doing that. So for example, I've just uh, recruited a CEO, which I've never done before. And it was super exciting, but I was like, I'm volunteering for that because I've never done it. And if I one day want to interview on the other side, I'll learn. I love that. I should actually listen to that advice a lot more than I do. I think maybe all of us on this podcast could learn something from that statement. Big love also from me to Justy. They supported Bristol Pride for a number of years. So they are a great organization for supporting and being really great to their staff. So I'm so glad that you have access to them. I wanted to ask maybe, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question in the context. It's about diversity and it's also about this, the volunteering aspect of the organization that you and Mike are part of, the, again, the Federation of Humanitarian Technologists. And it's about that word technologist. And I would love to hear your perspective of and whether you've had experience of people that have these tech skills, you say, that, like that could be doing something good with them. But sometimes within a diversity space or within open source, the word of technologist and the kind of assumption that we should be able to do a Docker instance as part of our open source or we should be able to do all these different things to do with open source to be able to participate is sometimes, I think, the barriers for diversity. So I'd love to hear you sort of expand on the different things that you've witnessed when people do really want to get engaged with these kinds of projects, but the barriers that you've maybe perceived and the ones that you've tried to knock down so that they can participate. So I think about this in slices and it's probably, so I need to tackle each one in a slice and very sort of parallel processing here. But anyway, firstly, gender diversity. You know, as I alluded to before, I certainly was very conscious about it when I was younger. And yet I just figured it would get better because more people were coming into the industry. And if nothing else, it's just stayed stagnant through. And actually India is a place where technology is seen as a great career for women because it's something that you can do from home. It's something that your workplace will send you a car, pick you up and drop you off. It's sort of, it's one of those careers that organizations have money to help you and support you. So it's sort of really interesting that if I had a car that took me into an office, I might go into an office, but I don't, so I don't. But so that's one aspect of it. I think that I've learned that I have my own biases. And so it was a real shock to me to think that 
having spent 15 years looking at this whole industry, that I had a bias that tech was perhaps more a male-orientated field. And I only learned that by doing the MIT, trying to remember it, but I'll give you a link. But there's an MIT test that you can do to uncover what biases you have. And when I learned about the BBC microbit, I also learned about these tests. And sort of putting the two together just kind of blew my mind. I have to change that. So one of the things I do is I work, I volunteer to, with the Women in Science and Engineering at the Edinburgh University's Machine Learning Centre which is great because I get to learn more about machine learning. And they ask me some really interesting questions about everyday sexism and how you navigate that through. And they are some really hard questions. There are some really hard questions in that realm. The other things I've been thinking about is the sort of LGBTQ community. Until about a year ago, I would never have mentioned it on a podcast like this, that I'm part of the community ever. I've (laughs) kept it really separate my identity from my workplace. And I only started integrating it into the workplace when I joined 2012 and I sort of chaired their LGBTQ plus working group. And I only did that because I really wanted a, a permanent job there, by the way. I didn't do it for some, you know, amazing reason. I just really wanted to be part of London 2012. But what I learned over that period was that I was accepted within the workplace, that I was, you know, part of a much bigger community. And actually, if you volunteer at Open UK, which I highly recommend, you get a lot of training. And one of the pieces of training we did was media training. And that piece of training, I realized that I wasn't being authentic when speaking to people in a forum like this. And so that's when I started integrating that, my personal story of being gay into these types of conversations. I can tell you that my conversations, my presentations since have landed a hundred times better. I have really gained from sharing that story out there. But one thing I've noticed is that there aren't enough LGBTQ plus spaces for the technology community, especially in the UK. I've been uh, lucky enough to get my companies to sponsor Lesbians Who Tech and speak at it. And the British Computing Society is creating a new group. So if you're part of the community and you want to join us, then definitely we could take all the help we could take. And so please. But yeah, there's just not enough. So that's, you know, a call to action. Go and create your own groups. I think I can't speak to race because I sort of, you know, I am a brown woman (laughs) in the UK. And I sort of, I'm really conscious that I don't know enough and that I'm still learning. And I think after the sort of Black Lives Matter movement last year, done quite a lot of work, not in tech, but within sport to really, and I'm still learning, but there are some great organizations out there like Black Valley and Black Girls Code, which I highly recommend and I'm learning from them. Thank you so much. That was really excellent. That was a great just rundown of your perspective. I really hate my job sometimes, which is the, to be the facilitator and say that's we have to wrap up. It's like the worst thing in the world, especially as it takes around 45 minutes to get really good. But we do. And that's just how podcasts go. They're around. I feel like I, I'm going to talk over you and say, I feel like I talked too much and I didn't even get to talk to you about neurodiversity. We must have you on again then. But one thing which we could do 
in preparation or whatever, or just to help other people out is ask you, where can people hear more of your words? Where can they follow your presentations? Where can they follow you on Twitter? Where are you on the internet? The easiest place to find me is at kavitakapoor.org. Excellent. That's K-A-V-I-T-A-K-A-P-O-O-R.org. We're not done yet. This is the part of the show called Spotlight where we talk about projects, things, people, whatever that we really like that we think needs more love. Doesn't have to be open source, just has to be super cool. So, Eric Berry, what are you passionate about today? What needs love? Well, program just launched recently called Fund OSS. And what it is, it's a collaboration between Open Collective and Gitcoin, where they are paving a path to fund a handful of open source projects But the way they do that is with quadratic funding or what they call democratic funding. I don't want to go too much into it, but it is an amazing effort to get funding distributed to those projects that actually really are finding the community love and support. And it's really neat and satisfying when you donate a certain amount of money and and realize that money is now exponentially more valuable to the people that you're donating to. So, for example, I donated yesterday $25 to, I think, eight projects, and that $25 turned into a little over 200. So I thought that was pretty cool and it's exciting. And I'm really loving the new innovations around funding open source. So uh, you can get there at fundoss.org. Thank you so much, Eric. We have had Kevin Owaki and Pia Mancini on the podcast to talk about fundoss.org. So you can go ahead and listen to that podcast. That also reminded me in the middle that for anyone who wants to have more conversations around things like diversity, sustain also exist. I feel like I never say that and I keep forgetting to say that we literally have a diversity meeting in around four hours for the diversity working group. So just felt like a little plug there. Errol, what is your spotlight? My spotlight is a organization that I love. If you haven't had Hera Hussein on the podcast yet, I would highly recommend you talking to Hera Hussein. She runs a project called Chain, and that is Chain spelled C H A Y N dot co for the URL. Chain creates a number of different open source tools, open source resources for survivors of domestic abuse and other kinds of abuse. They are fantastic tools that really help a lot of people suffering and living with abuse and domestic violence in the UK and. Really recommend you check out the repository and see what you can contribute to those projects. Thank you so much. Alyssa, what is your spotlight? I am thankful that my computer is working. That is, that's all I have. All right. Good to have working computers. For those of you who are interested in donating computers, there are things out there like Microbit where you can get computers to people who don't have them yet. So I would Google that and we'll think of a better thing for that later. My spotlight today is the NGLCC, the National Gay and Lesbian. Uh, I think they should rename to that. <laughs> I mean, the devil's It's very, it's very simple. Like <laughs> I don't know what the CC stands for. It's not Creative Commons, but they're the largest advocacy organization. Coalition, probably yes. Oh, Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, NGLCC, National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. They're the largest advocacy organization dedicated to expanding economic opportunities and advancements for LGBT people, which is super, super cool. They also certify businesses as LGBT. So Burnt Fen Creative, my business is certified as LGBTQ because I am the B. 
the hidden B in LGBTQ. I never talked about that because I don't really think it's anyone else's business. But I guess in the spirit of sharing it, we should be gay and code things. All right, cool. Kavita, what's your spot? I don't know how to follow any of those. They were all amazing projects. But so I'm going to go a little bit closer to home. I'm going to call out Software Conservancy. It's run by my best friend, Karen Sandler, who is amazing. And I would not be thinking open source if it wasn't for her. So there you go. Karen is the best. All right, that's it. Thank you so much, Kavita. It was excellent to have you on. I was really just blown away by the depth of your answers and your willingness to go out and do awesome stuff for open source and for the world. Errol is dropping a heart emoji. That is totally true. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you very much.